Kia ora, welcome back to Flying the Fern, powered by New Zealand Stories, Fernmark License Programme and produced by Raw Collective. This series is all about telling the real-life stories of well-known New Zealand businesses that carry the official Fernmark logo. We dig into how they came about, the challenges they've overcome, and their contribution to the reputation New Zealand businesses have around the world. You might not necessarily recognise the name of today's guest, but you'll definitely know some of their products. Pro-Life Foods is behind some of the self-service nuts and fruits in Kiwi supermarkets, as well as well-known brands like Mother Earth, Donovan's Chocolates, Fleming's, and more. The company started out in a Hamilton garage nearly 40 years ago, delivering apricots and dried foods to health shops around town. Now they export to around 18 countries, with 1,500 employees and more than $300 million in annual revenue. CEO Andrew Smith takes us through their phenomenal journey from being extremely grassroots to being multinational, how it's happened, the wins and challenges they've had, and how a simple commitment to great food is at the core of their success. Well, kia ora, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here too. Very good. Now, first question for you. If you had a visitor coming from overseas to New Zealand for the first ever time, what is the must-do thing? You know, What's your number one bit of advice for a visitor? Well, I guess... I mean, you come to New Zealand, you've got to see the beautiful scenery and people start with Queenstown and Rotorua and they're great. But actually the place I'm most passionate about at the moment is Whangarei. And after going to the Hundertwasser Museum there, art gallery, and the way they've developed the waterfront area, I reckon that's an unknown gem of New Zealand, or maybe it's known to some people, but that's my top tip at the moment. Very good. Get yourself to the north, to the winterless north and check out the Hundertwasser. That's wonderful. So, as I understand it, Pro-Life started with a couple, Bernie and Kay Crosby, who were delivering food, apricots, I think, around New Zealand from Hamilton in a Triumph 2000. Tell me how about that got started. Well, I guess as entrepreneurs often start, I mean, by the time we get to sort of bigger businesses, we're full of strategic plans and kind of detailed analyses for the next period. The legend for Bernie and Kay Crosby is that they'd lent a guy some money, uh, which seemed to be quite a casual thing that he did, and the guy couldn't pay him back. So Bernie's choice from this guy was, well, I can't pay you back, but I can either give you this retirement home I've bought or I can give you these dried apricots that I bought. And so Bernie decided he was a bit young for a retirement <laughs> home. And so he took these dried apricots. It sounds a bit of like Jack and the Beanstalk scenario there here. I've got some magic apricots here for you. <laughs> exactly. And the interesting thing for me is I've worked more with small companies and entrepreneurial New Zealand companies is that's not completely unfamiliar, that people find something and then what they do is just their ability to make something out of nothing. So those first dried apricots, he sold around the neighborhood and driving in his car with Kay kind of measuring them out on their kitchen bench. But they liked the products and people said, have you got more? And in classic entrepreneurial style, even though he didn't, he said he did. And he just went out and found the products. And he started in sort of small health shops and then sort of worked his way up from there. And one of the big step changes for pro-life was Bernie driving past supermarkets to go to small health food shops and going, I wonder if I'd sell more if I went to a supermarket, if only I had something to sell. And that's where he developed kind of and got involved in this whole bulk foods, self-selection, loose foods model, because he didn't have money to buy packaging equipment, but he could get in there. And he then, that's how a lot of the journey started. 
Wow, and that's sort of become quite trendy again now, isn't it? As we become much more aware of packaging and yeah. its you know, impact on the environment. But he started out a necessity by the sound of it. Correct. For him, it was a necessity because that's all he could afford, the only way he could sell it. But you're dead right. I mean, we've he built the relationship with Alison Holst to build the Alison's Pantry brand, which was very successful. And we've just recently launched the Carefillery brand, which is very much the same bulk foods model, but for the modern times with that heightened environmental concern and care. And it's all an evolution and a a building. So it is quite neat how these things keep cycling around. Isn't it neat? For those of us who are my generation, so, you know, Alison Holst was the TV chef in their day. You know, we learned, I remember I had her cookbook when I was sent off to university with Alison Holst's cookbook. She was on the telly. She was everywhere. She was huge. That must have changed the game in terms of getting her on board for the business. Absolutely changed the game. And again, Bernie rocked up to her front door. She had no idea who he was. And just his sheer force of personality convinced her that he was a lunatic worth listening to, if you like. Her credibility, particularly in those early days, was hugely important for the supermarket owners to go, we're entrusting this area of the store to pro-life foods. The fact that Alison Holst is on board and there's the quality of the food that goes with that was a really important contributor to those early years. Brilliant. But I'd imagine also, I mean, a a couple like Bernie and and Kay, I mean, yes, it sounds like it was all sort of coincidence and like, but I'm sure there was a philosophy or kind of a mentality behind this as well. You know, what was the kind of original thesis they had? Well, it's interesting because when I came in as the CEO and sort of brought some of the bigger company philosophies and a way of thinking about business, I was really keen to not change that fundamental ethos that had got them so successful. And although they hadn't written it down, what I wrote down in the first six months with them was kind of our purpose, which was this great food with obsessive service. And that obsessive service was a really strong word, but it captured Bernie particularly to a T. He would do anything and everything for his customers. He would drive up and down the country. That was his way of doing things. So I was always really excited to try and find a way to keep that philosophy going, even if we were a bigger company. And now we're a much, much bigger company, but great food is still hugely important to us. And in every market we operate, obsessive service is what we want to do. So those small things can carry on to be big things. I love it when you've got a sort of a founder-originated business who keeps that core philosophy going through. And as you say, you're a much, much bigger business now. Those magic beans or magic apricots clearly were got you onto something because you're you know multi, multi-million dollar business and annual sales now. That's not an easy path. It's easy to start a business. It's much, much harder to grow one. So can you tell us about the challenges that you know that you hear about that they went through in those early days? Yeah. And I think they're the same at all stages that Growing is what you want to do, and clearly it's better than the alternative, which is not growing. But growing has challenges for you because your working capital tends to go up, and we're a very capital-intensive business. We have inventory of food, and if we double our business, we double our inventory, and we have to pay for that. So managing how you grow without going bust while you're being successful is a really interesting piece. And that doesn't go away. The growth from 5 million to 10 million has that, from 50 to 100 has that, and now from 300 to whatever we'll be in the next 5, 10 years, that challenge is still with us to make sure we our capital can support the journey that we're on. Amazing. And you also grew through acquisition, didn't you? You bought the Mother Earth brands. That suddenly doubles the workload, doesn't it? You've got now two businesses that you're trying to combine into one. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact of it was that 
when we bought Mother Earth, it was a $6 million business and we were a 40-odd million dollar business. So actually, it wasn't a big add-on. We've been very successful with Mother Earth and it's probably a $100 million brand now. But most of that was organic growth, if you like. The actual acquisition was a relatively small part. So we've been quite careful of what we've done. We've tended to buy capability and brands that we think have capability rather than buy big amounts of business. And a lot of that was just practically because that's what we could afford to do. But we were quite selective in each of the businesses that we bought. And we bought quite a lot into the honey business with both manufacturing and plantations and beekeepers and so on. But at each stage, we've kind of built the right piece we needed. And then the plan is to organically grow it rather than buy something big. It sounds like a very smart move. And you you yourself came on board 2009, so what did you say, 13 odd years ago now. Clearly, it's been a, a great ride for you as well to keep that growth going. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting because I still see myself as a newcomer within pro-life, though clearly I'm not anymore. And I look at my <laughs> colleagues in the sort of New Zealand supermarket business, and I'm not sure if there's anyone who's not an owner of a company who was around when I started. But I've just enjoyed the journey, and we've had a good core of people who've done the whole journey. And in fact, a number of them were here before I started. And obviously, we built a whole lot more staff. So it's that people challenge and discovering new things that keeps you energized, because if you're not energized, you might as well go and do something else. I think for everybody, there's a there's a requirement to learn and be interested and, and stretch because a lot of what you do, particularly over the last few years, has been very tough. But we have to keep pushing and we have to keep stretching ourselves and that's what we're doing. When a new CEO comes into a kind of a founder-owned business and particularly a kind of a husband-wife team, there's a transition that has to happen there. What, what did Bernie and Kay step aside to do or what do they get involved with? Yeah. And it's interesting because I think our situation, which always has some unique elements to it, is then replicated across a number of my friends and other companies where they've taken it on. And it is a challenge because there is a change in style and there's got to be good cooperation and support for things to work. As it happened, Bernie got Parkinson's disease. So it started it two years before I joined. And so I guess he knew that he wasn't going to be able to do what he did. And that obsessive service, he just threw himself at it. He couldn't do that anymore. So he started by getting himself aboard And then he realized that he just didn't need a board. He needed a management team and a clear management structure. So it was almost two years into that realization by the time I started. So the actual business was completely ready for it. It was just a natural progression. But then you have to work together. And that changes over time as people mature and develop their ways of working. But that's been a crucial part of the journey. And if we couldn't have done that, then we wouldn't have achieved what we've achieved over the last 13 years. Nice. What was it like, though, having them around still in the business? You know, were they just checking on the quality, making sure that, uh, you know, the service was happening the way they wanted it to, that sort of thing? In my case, the advantage was really they did none of that. They were already governance, not management. And so they really weren't actively involved and haven't been able to be too much. So they've been very useful to have on the board and provide that kind of values base for the company. But actually, it's our skills have worked very well because I think I would say to Bernie and Bernie would say to me that I couldn't have done what he did at the beginning of the journey because I just don't have that quite entrepreneurial drive to create something from nothing. But to create the next stage when you've got lots of levers of management and business, that was something that I had a lot more experience than him. So that transition was ideal as it turned out. 
That's brilliant. I mean, that, that is a mark of a, you know, a really excellent handover process when you realise that the, you're no longer the person that can lead the business to the next level. So quite insightful. But you've sounds like you've done amazing things too. You've gone on to acquire more companies and expand into Australia. You know, you've really grown that business. Tell us a little bit about some of those lessons along the way. Well, I guess effectively when I started, we were one strong business which was the self-selection business in New Zealand. And we were just starting to get into grocery and we just we hadn't completed the Mother Earth acquisition, but we were just about to do it. And so we knew that we had to risk diversify. Self-selection New Zealand was all of us. We now got self-selection grocery and honey, and we've now got New Zealand, Australia and international. And effectively, we're building out that three by three matrix. That's been a, a strategy that we had 10 years ago that we've worked on ever since. And my I had more experience in Australia and international than the rest of the company did. So that was a quite a natural thing for me to think about how could we be a successful New Zealand business in Australia because I'd worked for quite a few other companies who'd, who'd wrestled with that. So, And we had something that was unique to sell and that's an important thing. And I wanted to ask you about that that New Zealand company in Australia thing because there, there's legends here about, you know, for those of us who follow the kind of business press about New Zealand businesses that treat Australia perhaps a little bit too lightly and then founder on the rocks, uh, literally the rocks in Sydney. Um, so how do you show up, I suppose, as a New Zealand brand in the Australian market? What's, what's your kind of experience and advice on that? Well, I think Australia is the obvious place for New Zealand companies to go, but that doesn't mean you take it lightly, and a lot of people do. Mm. And like every country, there's an investment curve to grow. And if you're not careful about what you do, you're not set up for an investment curve. And Australia has big markets, competition versus New Zealand. And so you've got to be determined and you've got to know you've got something different. And I think a number of companies just turn up thinking, well, it's going to be easy. It's just like going to Christchurch from Auckland or whatever. And actually, it's much harder than that. And so I think that's the crucial thing for us. And it's not an overnight success. I mean, we've been in Australia 10 plus years now. We've built a $100 million business in Australia and nearly $150 million next year. But it's not been a simple exercise. And we've, we're still learning and we're still making mistakes. And the Australians, there is more competition than there is here. And so if you're not good enough, you'll get found out. New Zealand is a positive thing. We're close to Australia. We understand a lot of how to operate in Australia, but we don't just get a free pass because we're New Zealanders. We use the New Zealand angle, but not more than it needs to be used. I mean, we have nearly 900 employees in Australia, and they're all Australian or nearly all Australian. So we bring stuff from New Zealand, and they're proud of being part of a New Zealand company. And in truth, quite a few of our employees are probably New Zealanders living in Australia, but we don't think that gives us a magic pass. Going into Asia and the Middle East, the New Zealandness can win more. And as we get more into Manuka honey, it's a bigger piece. But when Australians are buying muesli bars or nuts, the New Zealand angle doesn't really add a lot. It's your strength and quality of your business that succeeds. So it's about then picking the right messaging for that market, understanding what they already know about us or think that they know about New Zealand and then how, you know, what's the right messaging to get across. If you're going into Asia and you're a food company, like, is it around the quality? Is it around the kind of the provenance story? Is it around the trustworthiness of this food? Like, you know, what are the sort of key messages you try and get across? 
I think all of those are important. Again, it's more important than Australia, but it's not a secret, you know, kind of a, an instant pass. I mean, I'm sure you go around you know, international markets and there isn't a lot of New Zealand product there. There are a few exceptions and you obviously got dairy and I think kiwi fruit has been fantastic. And every market I go to, you see Zespri and you go, that's a whole lot of hard work that got there. But international consumers aren't desperately hanging out to buy New Zealand products. But good New Zealand products that have a reason for their lives can be successful. And I think we do have a good quality reputation and we have a reputation of being straightforward to deal with. So those are important enablers, but on their own, they're not enough. They're a part of the mix rather than the whole mix. If you think you just slap a New Zealand logo on it and suddenly it will sell it, I don't think it's as easy as that. The story is only as good as what backs it up and what the consumer experience is and that sort of service approach that you mentioned earlier. You've got four values on your website, I noticed. Passion, integrity, accountability, and success. How do you kind of make sure that they flow all the way through? Because they line up very well with what I'd consider the New Zealand values. How do you make sure that they flow through to all your businesses? They do, and that's a whole lot of hard work. And, and so we've been quite consistent until COVID of having regular roadshows, getting out in front of our staff. And it's been great for the last month and a half. I've been able to travel again and my HR team and my key business leaders. And we've done roadshows all around Australia. So I think 15 roadshows with staff across Australia. We did a roadshow in Singapore, kind of half in Chinese and half in English. And I think you have to work at those cultural and values pieces because unless you put the effort in, they are just words. And I think they're words that work well for us and our staff resonate and they they work well coming from a New Zealand company, but you've still got to do the hard work to make them mean something. Yes, it's very good. Now, you also use the Fernmark and obviously that's what, you know one of the topics of this podcast series, that brand trademark of New Zealand. Tell us a bit about why you have that and what does it do for you? Yes, yeah, so we were an early user and, and with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, NZTE, ever since we've started our international journey, we've worked well with NZTE and NZTE has worked well with us. And we saw that it was a key thing if we were going to succeed is to tap into that resource. And clearly, the New Zealand story and the Fernmark are parts of that armory. We can't completely rely on them, but why wouldn't you use them? Because they do work and they can work. And we're all part of that kind of collective of New Zealand companies. It's There's a strength in numbers there. If we're all using that Fernmark, it means more, and therefore we all get better benefit out of it. And I, I'm kind of very passionate to support that. And so we use the Fernmark extensively. We use it in New Zealand where probably it doesn't make too much difference because we're selling against other people who are mostly New Zealand companies. But we put it on everything we can do because it's an important part of who we are and we don't overestimate its use, but also we want to support it. That's great. You know, we're hearing from lots of businesses, it's that kind of collaborative nature, the fact that, you know, pro-life foods being a, a reputation of excellence and integrity and service and carrying the food mark will actually create a halo effect for other companies, even if they're not in the food sector sometimes. So the whole strategy is around growing the overall reputation. Yeah, and my guys have just come back from the Cial trade show in Paris. And, you know, that's an important part of what we were selling. I mean, particularly we were focusing on Manuka honey, which has a stronger New Zealand story. And so that was a key part of what we wanted to do. And then that enabled us to work very well with all the other New Zealand companies and New Zealand resources that were there. So we're a small country, so we've got to find a way to make a bigger presence. Exactly. So what's next for ProLife? By any 
way that you measure it, you're very successful at the moment. You're in, I think, 18 countries or something like that. You've grown multi, multi-million dollar business from <laughs> from some dried apricots. <laughs> um, where's it going to take you? Because it feels like it's just, you're on an amazing ride. Yeah, and I think we've just got to a position where we've come out of COVID and it's been a tough period. And in fact, there are some parts of our business, like our self-selection business, where we couldn't sell properly because government restrictions on loose food and so on. So we're embarking on a real recovery mode as well as a growth mode for the next period. We are running off the things that have worked well for the last few years, but they've got a lot more potential in them. So I think that self-selection concept, we do that in every market we've been in. We've done it better than anyone else. And so how do you keep going and how do you find new markets for that? Our Mother Earth brand just fits and works very well with consumers. It's one of those brands where you don't have to advertise as much because people understand a Mother Earth brand will be good, natural, wholesome food. And that fits very well with New Zealand. You couldn't think of a better clean and green brand than Mother Earth, really. And then that Manuka honey story. So we're not short of opportunities, our piece will be to be good enough to grow because all of that's good, but no one will give it to us. And so we have to go out there and work and we'll find some things are successful and other things aren't, and we'll have to adjust as we go along. So that's the picture of the next five years. But we have got some good resource and we've got some great expertise. And so how we leverage that will be the crucial piece. I think it's wonderful. As I said, earlier, the values of your product, the whole way that your business operates seems to now very much align with how consumers are thinking, you know, lack of packaging or sustainable packaging, um, more conscious about their health and and the quality of food that they eat and coming out of COVID, you know, you've got such a great story that you can build on. So I just think the future is very bright and uh, thank you very much for flying the fern. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast series is all about highlighting the amazing work New Zealand companies are doing in a variety of sectors and spaces. If you like this episode, there's plenty more great stories from Flying the Firm podcast that you can listen to. Just go ahead and check them out where you found this one. We're also highlighting the Fernmark license program, which we talked about during the episode. The Fernmark is our national symbol and a country of origin mark that helps Kiwi businesses promote trust, authenticity and credibility by leveraging the good reputation that New Zealand has overseas. To find out more or to apply to be part of the program, head to our website, fernmark.nzstory.gov.nz. And lastly, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps others find us. Haere for now.